We are done with two sets of rules, one for the Republicans and one for the Democrats. Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. Elsewhere in California on KFOI, Red Bluff, Redding, KKRN, Round Mountain, KGOE, Eureka. In Oregon on KYAQ Central Coast, Queso Cottage Grove, KEPW Eugene. On Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii, KAKU, Columbus, Ohio, WGRN, Palinville, New York, WLPP, Grand Rapids, Michigan, WPRR. New Orleans, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas, KPSQ, Seattle, KODX, Goldendale, Washington, KVGD, Janesville, Wisconsin, WADR, Minneapolis, St. Paul, AM 950, KTNF, and coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com. Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing the globe five days a week. As usually hosted by Brad Friedman of bradblog.com. But I'm in today, Angie Coiro of In Deep with Angie Coiro, heard on many of these same stations and streams. Coming up later in the show, a guided tour through the maze that is Trump world. What we still don't know after the non-release of the Mueller report, what would happen to judicial appointments if Trump were impeached? What could be undone and all that we are stuck with? That is just a few minutes away. First up, though, Donald Trump is lawyering up again, this time to fight the House Dems who want his tax returns on record. We're going off to the CNBC for this late summary. In a letter Friday to Treasury Department General Counsel Brent McIntosh, lawyer William Consovoy, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly because that's what I got. William Consovoy argued that the House Ways and Means Committee has no legitimate committee purpose for seeking the president's returns. The attorney from the law firm Consovoy McCarthy Park also wrote the Treasury would, quote, set a dangerous precedent by releasing the returns. Consovoy argued in the letter obtained by NBC News, even if Ways and Means had a legitimate committee purpose for requesting the tax returns, the purpose is not driven by Chairman Richard Neal's request. His request is a transparent effort by one political party to harass an official from the other party because they dislike his politics and speech. Yeah, that's why. Heavy.com has already put up their five fast facts feature already up about Consovoy. For one thing, he has attacked the demand for the returns as an abuse of power. Here's his quote. It would be a gross abuse of power for the majority party to use tax returns as a weapon to attack, harass, and intimidate their political opponents. Once this Pandora's box is opened, the ensuing tit-for-tat will do lasting damage to our nation. You see, Trump and his cohorts are always deeply concerned about damaging the nation. Among those five fast facts, Consovoy once clerked for Clarence Thomas. 
He worked on a case that targeted the Voting Rights Act. There is a picture evolving here, isn't there? But Heavy missed one thing. The park in the law firm's name, Consovoy McCarthy Park, is Trump's nominee for the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. Wheels within wheels. Elizabeth Warren says on her presidential watch she will eliminate the filibuster, even though she's participated in at least one herself. She sees it now as a weapon of tyranny rather than democracy. That is the stance she took Friday first in a series of tweets, then at Al Sharpton's National Action Network gathering. So let me be as clear as I can about this. When Democrats next have power, we should be bold. We are done with two sets of rules, one for the Republicans and one for the Democrats. And that means when the Democrats have the White House again, if Mitch McConnell tries to do what he did to President Obama and put small-minded partisanship ahead of solving the massive problems in this country, then we should get rid of the filibuster. After Donald Trump changed his mind about closing the border, a threat of rather amorphous definition anyway, he promptly claimed that he didn't change his mind about the border. I never changed my mind at all. Uh, I may shut it down at some point, but I'd rather do tariffs. So Mexico, I have to say, has been very, very good, you know that, over the last four days since I talked about shutting down the border. Uh, if they continue that, uh, everything will be fine. And more than once in the past 24 hours, he made that claim about Mexico being very good for the last few days without defining what the heck he meant. Very good? That's standard operating procedure. Why explain? Trump was asked at the Oval Office, my God, it's going to take years to remove the stench there, about the effect a border closure would have on the economy. His response? Sure, it's going to be, have a negative impact on the economy. It's one of the biggest trade deals in the world that we've just done with the USMCA. Uh, it's a very big trading partner. But to me, trading is very important. The borders are very important. But security is what is most important. I mean, I have to have security. Very good. Big. Important. The problem with that is the hypothetical nature of the statement. It's already causing problems. This is from KPBS. Quote, President Trump's threats to close the border have slowed cross-border commerce at the country's busiest port of entry, despite his comments Thursday indicating he intended to give Mexico a year to stop the flow of migrants to the U.S. But he didn't change his mind. Local business leaders feared the effect could be long-term, quoting Paola Avia, vice president of the International Business Affairs for the San Diego Regional Chamber of Commerce. It's actually worse to have this threat renewed for a year versus resolving it now, she said. I consider it very detrimental. KPBS also cites an example of what can happen. A temporary closure at the San Ysidro port of entry late last year led to the loss of millions of dollars on both sides of the border, according to some officials. Ever since then, fears about the border closing again are stifling what is normally a $4 billion annual exchange between the two cities. San Diego's hotels rely on workers from Tijuana. Mexicans work as nannies in San Diego, allowing U.S. citizen mothers to keep their jobs. Americans who can't afford San Diego housing live in Tijuana while commuting to work. Wealthier Mexicans send their kids to private school in San Diego. And yet, 
Trump continues to hurt us just by opening his mouth. But wait, there's more. Now he's changed his mind about who he wants to head up ICE. We go to the Washington Post for this one. President Trump said Friday he's looking for someone, quote, tougher to lead the country's top immigration enforcement agency, hours after the White House unexpectedly withdrew its nomination for Ronald Fidiello to lead U.S. immigration and customs enforcement. Asked why he jettisoned the man, the current acting director of ICE, who'd been scheduled to accompany him on a trip to the border Friday, Trump told reporters, we're going in a little different direction. Ron's a good man, but we're going in a tougher direction. We want to go in a tougher direction, echoing himself. Washington Post continues the move blindsided lawmakers, Department of Homeland Security officials. Why would they know, right? Why should they know? And others across the administration who said Friday they couldn't fathom why the president would pull his ICE nominee at a moment when U.S. government officials are saying the nation's immigration enforcement system is at a breaking point. Jeff Flake is a Republican who's learned most recently what going up against Trump can mean. Now, he's got a wobbly record for that anyway. He's perfectly at peace, for example, with his vote for Brett Kavanaugh. Still, his protests against Trump, limited and lukewarm though they are, are enough to inflame Trump's most violent and unstable supporters. He told The Guardian UK that he, his wife, and his children have received numerous threats in the past year. Earlier in the week, a man in Chicago pleaded guilty to leaving a threatening voicemail following Flake's role in the Kavanaugh hearing, stating, I'm tired of him interrupting our president. I'm coming down there to take him and his family out. There have been many more that Flake has not spoken about before. A Trump supporter who arrived at three churches in Arizona looking for Flake and carrying a rifle scope. Threats that have listed the addresses of his five children, others that have linked to beheading videos. I'm not saying that drove me out, he told The Guardian, but to go out there, a campaign takes not just you. So goes life amongst the MAGAs. Okay, now to be fair, that is not to say all instability is on the MAGA side. In Palo Alto, California, earlier this week, a woman affiliated with a progressive Democratic group lit into a man in a MAGA hat outside of Starbucks. Now, the whole of his provocation apparently consisted of the hat. Aside from that, all reports are, even the woman who accosted him, that he was just sitting there, enjoying a beverage. I mean, after her vigorous attack, she has lost her job and had to contact police about, stop me if you've heard this one, death threats. Why are death threats the default now? Why is it the first go-to for so many people? On both sides. I know that's not a popular phrase, but yes, on both sides. Not to the same extent, but yeah. The Trump administration is having a very tough go with its not-so-stealth anti-immigrant question on the 2020 census. Now, judge number three has turned it down. Back to the Washington Post for this. A federal judge in Maryland ruled Friday against the government's addition of a citizenship question to the 2020 census, the third decision against the Trump administration. Judge George J. Hazel of the U.S. District Court for the District of Maryland in Greenbelt found the government violated administrative law when it decided to add the question last year. The ruling is likely to be appealed to the Supreme Court, just like the two earlier ones. In his ruling, Hazel wrote, quote, the reasonableness of the defendant's addition of a citizenship question to the census is underscored by the lack of any genuine need for the question. 
the woefully deficient process that led to it, the mysterious and potentially improper political considerations that motivated, motivated the decision, and the clear pretext offered to the public. But now do hear this bit. Hazel did not find enough evidence to support plaintiffs' claims that the government intended to discriminate against immigrants, Latinos, and Asian Americans by adding the question, or that adding the question was part of a conspiracy within the Trump administration to violate the constitutional rights of non-citizens and people of color. He said there was not enough evidence to back that up. The two federal judges that struck it down before are in New York and California. The Supreme Court is taking up the question on April 23rd. Those are the big stories today. Coming up, going into depth with all the investigations into Donald Trump still standing and how they might all play out. That is coming up on the broadcast. Hi, this is Brad. My thanks to those who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to sign up for a subscription to the Bradcast of any amount you like. We rely on you to stay on your public airwaves. Please grab a subscription at bradblog.com slash donate. Thank you. It's the Bradcast. I'm Angie Cuero in for Brad and Des today. Whether we will ever see the Mueller report is still an open question. We should at least get to see the parts that we paid for. Oh, wait, that's all of it. Anyway, before the Barr memo came out, no doubt colored by his earlier written opinion that Mueller's theory of obstruction was fatally misconceived and legally insupportable, I had a good long talk with two experts, both of them with precisely the right credentials to probe all this. Hadar Aviram has taught at UC Hastings Law since 2007, and she specializes in criminal justice and civil rights. She's the author of The Legal Process and the Promise of Justice that's coming out this month. Joel Paul is an author as well. His book, Without Precedent, Chief Justice John Marshall and His Times just came out in paperback. He's a constitutional law scholar and an American historian at UC Hastings Law. And we talked in early March. We started out with Joel Paul Richards' simple metaphor. I thought this was great. It helps people understand how many investigations are going on and what exactly they're covering. The first bucket is the Trump Organization and the foundation and the various allegations about tax fraud, uh, bank fraud, uh, insurance fraud now, and, and possibly a misuse of his uh, nonprofit organization. The second bucket is really the campaign and the question about the degree to which the campaign may have been infected by some sort of uh, uh, Russian uh, participation uh, and the possibility that there may have been some kind of conspiracy to hack into private email servers and to um, influence the election outcome. The third bucket is really the inauguration committee. And there are various allegations now about whether or not money was taken from foreign governments and foreign, foreign agents and whether some of that money was possibly embezzled. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the fourth bucket is the presidency itself and uh, the way in which the president may or may not have engaged in abuses of power or obstruction of justice, intimidating witnesses, possibly uh, trying to negotiate with people about, about uh, pardons and, and that whole arrangement of potential claims. 
Hadar's nodding here. Do you have an impression of which of those arenas have come the furthest in proving that something actually went on? So I think it's a sign of our times that where we have the most proof is not, you know, on the, you know, perhaps more serious and obscure financial things, but on the paying the porn star aspect of things. <laughs> uh, that, that, that might be a sign of the times we live in. And, and I think this is the thing that we have the most verification for because we actually have the checks with Trump's signature on them. Uh, so, so out of all the allegations, this might not seem like the most serious one, but it does become serious and it goes out of the kind of just the, the you know, lewd and grotesque into, into actual things when we focus on, on campaign finance laws and how that was a violation of those. Mm -hmm. We hear constant denials from the White House that anything has gone on at all. We hear about collusion. I understand that collusion is not actually a legal charge that can be brought. You're our, our legal scholar here, Hadar. Let's start with that. And then, Joel, to follow up with you, I'd like to hear your same impressions as Hadar gave us as to what, what's sticking and what's not. So, Hadar, collusion. I think a lot of this depends on exactly what the collusion consists of. Mm -hmm. and, and this is where we're still a little bit in the fog, and we might learn more when we or if and when we receive the Mueller report, because the extent to which the collusion with Russia is going to yield criminal charges against people inside the, the White House depends on the extent to which there is knowledge inside the White House and actual collaboration with foreign nationals in bringing about the results of the 2016 election. In other words, the question is a version of the Watergate question. It's what did the president know and when did he know it? Mm -hmm. Want to chime in here, Joe? Sure. Um First of all, in terms of in terms of what I think are the most likely charges that may be brought against the president, in addition to what um, Hadar suggested, I, I also think that the various uh, financial allegations against the president are easier to prove than the charge of uh, conspiracy or collusion, because there we have paper records, and those records are in the hands of third parties. And so the president can't make a claim of executive privilege or immunity that would prevent those records from being accessed by a prosecutor. Mm -hmm. In terms of the collusion allegation, um, I think we should be very careful about using the word collusion. I think uh, that the president very cleverly introduce the word collusion into our vocabulary because collusion is not a legal charge. There's, there's no crime of collusion. The crime is conspiracy. And the crime of conspiracy is not uh, as organic sounding as collusion is. It doesn't involve some sort of ongoing cooperative relationship for a long period of time. It's just basically an individual, uh, two individuals get together and talk about intending to commit a crime. Mm -hmm. That's sufficient for the charge of conspiracy. And I think that that's what the president really has to fear is the allegations of conspiracy. You know, one of the reasons I'm really glad to have you here is because historical context on this is so important. You hear statements every day about, oh, the country's never been so divided, or this is the most serious <laughs> crisis we've had as a country, right. apparently short of shooting at each other. We did have <laughs> a civil war. But tell me how this figures in your mind. How do you read this in historical context? Right. Well, um, I think that people have drawn the parallels with Watergate, but I don't think this is like Watergate. I think that there are some important differences. Uh, one is the involvement of a foreign government. A second is the fact that we have a, a serious threat to the rule of law, um, that is pervasive. And I, I, I think that, uh, and we have a, um, this sort of populist movement that is uh, dividing the country and that is willing to perhaps 
accept whatever crimes the president may have committed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think a better analogy is to the Jeffersonian crisis of 1801. When Jefferson was elected, a lot of people in the country felt the same way about Jefferson's election that people felt about Trump's election, in the sense that half the country thought, great, we've got this guy who's going to go in and clean up the swamp, who's going to shake things up, who's going to change the whole country. And the other half of the country thought, we've got this crazy man. We've got somebody who has basically supported the French revolutionaries and who believes that the Constitution itself was a mistake. A- and the Jeffersonian crisis expressed itself in terms of Jefferson's desire to try to rid the Federalists from the uh, federal judiciary. And so all of the judges had been appointed by his predecessors, Adams and Washington. Um, they were all Federalists. Jefferson believed that he as president should have the authority to fire judges, just not to impeach them, to fire judges uh, and to hire judges at will. And that was the threat that he posed to the rule of law. And it was John Marshall who really stood up to Jefferson. And, you know, that's the subject of my book. Nice plug. I like that. (laughs) (laughs) You do what you can. (laughs) (laughs) Which is a good time to reintroduce our guest, Joel Richard Paul, if you're just tuning in, is a constitutional law scholar. And his book, Without Precedent, Chief Justice John Marshall and His Times just came out in paperback. Author of The Legal Process and the Promise of Justice, soon to come out to the shelves, Isidar Abiram, who I'm just about to ask more questions. She has taught at UC Hastings since 2007. Let's talk about what happens if, in fact, the president has some charges stick. Let's not get you to the fact where he's convicted of anything Mm -hmm. or removed from office. And we were just talking about removal of judges. Does anything that he has done up to this point as chief executive come under the radar as possibly undoable? Judges that he's appointed, anything like that? Can it be said that these were done under dark circumstances and shouldn't be allowed to stand? So I think it's important to, to, to look at this through the framework of what this presidency has tried to do to the Obama presidency. I mean, what we've seen in the last couple of years is an effort to erase the legacy of Barack Obama in every possible way. And we're seeing some successes on that front, but we're also seeing that there are some limitations to the ability to do that, which I think to me, and, and, and in this I'm, I'm quoting my colleague uh, Jack Balkin from, from Yale, means that we're not in a constitutional crisis place, m- meaning that we're still battling in the courts rather than in the streets, but we are in a place of deep constitutional vulnerability. So if and when we get rid of a particular government or a particular administration, that does not completely undo everything that that government does. There's no time machine that's going to bring us back to 2016. And a number of things have happened that have exposed, uh, A, the vulnerability of our election system, and that's something we will now have to contend with in every election, not just you know the ramifications of the previous one. And, and also the vulnerability of various other aspects of the rule of law, which we're going to have to you know tack together, but there is nothing that is going to bring us back. So all the judges that got hired are not going to get hired, Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh will be sitting on the court for decades to come. All of this stuff does not go away. Mm -hmm. Is there a mechanism to attack those one by one? Not really. Uh, so, so we don't have once once an administration ends, and again, we have very limited experience with this because at least with Watergate, which I agree is not a perfect comparator, uh, in that I agree with Joel, but at least with that, uh, we may recall that Watergate did not end in an impeachment. It ended in a resignation. Yes. And... Uh, Many people ended up going to prison and many people ended up getting indicted and convicted of various crimes. But uh, but it wasn't a clock bringing us to before Richard, Richard Nixon. 
much of what happened during the Nixon administration is stuff that we're still reaping the, the, the you know, benefits or harms of to this day, including the war on drugs, including the mass incarceration crisis in the United States. A lot of the roots of that are in the Nixon administration, and that's not going away. Mm-hmm. But, but many of the laws that were passed after Watergate were intended to try to erase that. So, you know, we had the, the uh, federal election laws that campaign reform. We had laws uh, that were designed to try to limit the president's authority uh, in getting us involved in another war in China, the, the uh, war, uh, war Powers Act. And so there were efforts by, by Congress to try to address those things. But, but Hadar is essentially right. You can't, you can't turn back the clock. And the appointees who, uh, that the president has made, the president now has about uh, 20% of all of the judges on the appellate courts have now been appointed by President Trump, and, and they will be there for life. Mm-hmm. The I word came up already, impeachment. Yes. Uh, Some people cast it as a pipe dream. It's not going to happen. It's not productive to talk about. Other people think, well, for example, in the wake of Richard Nixon and the actual impeachment of Bill Clinton, it's at least worth discussing. Right. So, Joe, let me stay with you for that one. Yeah. So, um, first of all, in terms of the definition of what is an impeachable crime, the the Constitution talks about uh, treason, bribery, and other high crimes and misdemeanors. But as a practical matter, what that has meant is whatever the House of Representatives deems it to be. Um, so the first uh, person who was impeached um, uh, was uh, Judge uh, John Pickering in New Hampshire um, uh, in 1801. A- and Judge Pickering was basically impeached for being a drunk. And uh, we've, we've seen 16 federal judges now have been impeached. We have uh, one senator was impeached. Um, and, of course, two presidents have been impeached. And they've all been impeached on grounds that um, the House of Representatives deem to be impeachable offenses. So anything is an impeachable offense, mm. uh, and it is a political process. Uh, it, so it, what, what matters is whether the people of the United States deem the impeachment to be reasonable or not. And uh, in the impeachments of President uh, Clinton, for example, a majority of Americans did not agree with the impeachment, and so uh, the Senate did not convict. Mm-hmm. Hadar, I feel like we're explaining to another generation. I lived through this with with the Nixon threat of impeachment, and that is, impeachment is not removal exactly. permanently. And you know, it's easy to feel like it is because people are saying impeach Donald Trump as though yeah. that's the be all and end all. Impeachment means a temporary removal from power for questioning. So impeachment actually occurs differently in the two houses. Ah. So the House has to draw articles of impeachment to impeach someone, and then that person is subject to a trial before the Senate. So it's a two-step process. Even though there isn't an actual technical impediment to indicting a sitting president for crimes, this has largely been regarded by commentators as kind of a version of a criminal trial, a very politicized version of a criminal trial for a sitting president. Mm-hmm. And that also means, and, and, and this adds to the idea of, you know, crimes that trigger impeachment or, you know, whatever you want them to be, to the fact that the evidence that we have heard of so far coming out of the Mueller investigation and coming out of the open testimonies in, in Congress, the public is only seeing the very tip of the iceberg. And the reason for that is that Mueller is no fool, And he knows what a disaster it would be to bring indictments against people inside the White House just based on a level of proof of probable cause. So he is not going to indict people unless he is 100% sure that the indictment is going to stick. 
So for example, the Paul Manafort is a great example of that. Here you have somebody where there is massive evidence for money laundering. There's everything is in the indictment, the foreign bank accounts, the amounts, what they were paid for. It's like every ostrich jacket in that man's house is documented in the indictment. And this indictment would not have gone forward had he not been absolutely sure that everything in the indictment is factually true. And still we see that the jury only can only, right, convicts of eight offenses and not of the others, because there is always going to be this political push. So if there are going to be accusations that pertain to people in the White House, we are likely not going to hear about them unless the investigatory team believes that they, they are true to a very high level of certainty. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joel, you were, you were, had, I noticed the look on your face when I talked about removing someone from power for questioning. Apparently that wasn't quite right with impeachment. Is a, is a president or other authority who's under impeachment for questioning, do they retain all their powers throughout that process? Yeah. So I think the question you're asking sort of raises the question about the relationship between indictment and impeachment, which is what, what Hadar was addressing. Uh, so in an impeachment, uh, an impeachment is analogous to indictment by a grand jury in the sense that all it is is the House is saying there's enough evidence here by a majority vote of the House to to have a trial. And then the Senate has a trial and two-thirds of the senators have to convict. So impeachment doesn't remove anyone. The conviction, if, if the president were convicted, he would be removed from office. So not even in temporary interruption while he's being questioned. The assumption is he's still in full power. Right. He's being and, questioned. and the question gets raised, you know, well, can you indict the president without an impeachment? Um, and, and that is a much more complicated question. The Department of Justice's policy is you can't indict him without an impeachment at the federal level. Now, a state could indict the president, mm-hmm. but the Justice Department's policy is you can't indict. There's nothing in the Constitution that would prohibit uh, an indictment of a sitting president. Uh, the Constitution's text... Uh, specifically says that impeachment applies to all civil officers, the president, the vice president, and all other civil officers, meaning all the judges, all the members of the cabinet, all the members of Congress can be impeached. Uh, and we know that, uh, that in at least six instances, uh, sitting judges have been uh, indicted without impeachment. So mm-hmm. indictment of a, of a sitting civil officer is possible. We know in the case of Spiro Agnew, the vice president, that the vice president was indicted without having an impeachment of the vice president. Um, And this is also consistent, I think, with evidence of the framers' intentions, because the first Congress, and the first Congress was composed largely of the people who actually wrote the Constitution and ratified the Constitution. When they got together, one of the first pieces of legislation they passed, the 1790 Criminal Act, specifically provided that sitting judges could be indicted for taking bribes. So it's clear that the framers of the Constitution intended that just because you were in power didn't mean that you were in any sense immune from indictment. Got a slew of questions coming in, briefly staying with impeachment. If impeachment fails, what other jeopardy might Trump face if impeachment doesn't work? So one of the complications in answering that question is that uh, Trump has worked very hard to really blur the limits between his private and public life. So one of the things that we've seen, for example, with the Trump Foundation is that it's not being administered in a blind trust away from him. 
his sons are looking at the foundation and he actually draws money from there. So the question of whether we're looking criminally at what he's done as a private person in his work on the Trump Foundation versus in his, president, in his presidential work is actually a fairly complicated question. We do know that there are state investigations in the state of New York. Uh, and the, the Attorney General of New York is looking at some of those. Uh, we're looking at issues pertaining to the emoluments clause. clause. We're looking at whether uh, foreign nationals staying in Trump hotels, for example, just paid market price to be there, or whether that has some connection to the presidency and the private businesses benefiting from them. So a lot of what might still be coming down the pipe that is seemingly private is not actually entirely private because this individual's private and public lives intersect in, in ways that are Joel's the historian, but in ways that are unprecedented. Joel? Yeah, and in addition to Hadar's point, um, the ongoing hearings in Congress may not necessarily result in an impeachment, but presumably they will have put political cost on the president and the ability of the president to maintain his majority in Congress and the ability of the president to get things done that he wants to get done. Mm -hmm. And I think we're seeing some evidence of that in terms of the willingness of various members uh, of the Senate uh, now, uh, Republican leaders in the Senate, to, to actually question the president with regard to the wall and, and their willingness to vote for a resolution opposing the wall. Have you been surprised at how recalcitrant some of the senators have been in trying to move forward on any of this? I have been, except if you think back to the example of Watergate, uh, it was also true in the case of Watergate that it wasn't really until the very last moments of the Watergate scandal that a majority of Americans of both parties decided that they thought the president was guilty mm -hmm. uh, and that the leaders, uh, the Republican leaders in the in the Senate expressed a willingness uh, to, to vote to convict. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's a precedent here for that. Did you want to add to that, Hadar? So I think it's also important to look more broadly at the context of what's going on, because um, we have a, a very devout base supporting Trump, and I think that Republicans in the Senate know that and are aware of that. I think that concerns about the integrity of the, of the party you know, and will the party survive the Trump presidency is, is probably something that people are seriously considering every day. And there's also the question of how many people are going to move to the other side once there's a critical mass. It's interesting that what actually triggered some of these kind of little defections from the, from the base is the issue of the emergency uh, declaration. Yes. And, and, and part of this might have to do with the fact that, by the way, this is not the first state of emergency that we've declared. And there, there have been multiple states of emergency declared by multiple presidents, but usually they have to do with actual crises happening in foreign countries. They don't have to do with an entirely manufactured crisis uh, that does not exist. Uh, and so I think that to some extent, the fact that this is just an usurpation of presidential power to get something done and to get money to get something done takes it away from just being a party issue and people feel more comfortable sort of peeling off of that consensus. Whether this issue has the power to peel more people off so that there's a critical mass and people are defecting from support, I think time will tell. It's quite possible that once sort of, you know, the, the emergency declaration gets defeated, they're going to come back to the fold and, and we'll have to wait and see next scandals. What's different about the emergency uh, issue is that the emergency issue is a direct threat to the authority of Congress. The president's other actions are maybe a threat to the rule of law, but they don't threaten the institution of Congress itself. In 
Article one of the Constitution gives Congress alone the exclusive authority to appropriate funds. The president now is trying to usurp that authority from Congress, and that is so fundamental to Congress's powers that it is no surprise that members of both parties uh, feel strongly enough that they're willing to vote for this resolution. Is, is this unprecedented historically, or we've seen that kind of power grab before? What is unprecedented he here, as, as Hadar points out, is that the president has declared a false emergency. That's the only part. Uh, but, you know, we have the example of Truman and the seizure of the steel mills during the Korean War, where Truman seized the steel mills, I think, for justifiable reason that the strikes in the steel mills threatened to disrupt the ability to, to fight the Korean War and to rearm uh, Europe to contain the Russians. Mm -hmm. In spite of the fact that, that, that the Joint Chiefs said to Truman, we have to stop this strike. Truman stopped the strike. Truman gave the workers the raises that they wanted, and they got them to go back to work. The Supreme Court of the United States said that the, the president has no such authority, that there's nothing in the Constitution that gives him any authority to declare an emergency or to act in an emergency other than the specific delegations of authority given by Congress. In this particular instance, the legislation that the president is primarily relying on it's not the National Emergencies Powers Act. That's, that's a, a red herring. The, the legislation he's relying on is actually uh, section, I think it's um, uh, 10 U.S.C. 2808, which uh, refers to military installations and gives the president the authority to move funds from one, the construction of one military installation to another military installation. By no means can anyone characterize the construction of this wall as a military installation. Mm -hmm. Someone anticipated a question that I had, and that is where Ivanka, where does she fit into all this? So again, one of the reasons why it's difficult to figure out the who's who of who is going to answer for all this, if anyone, has to do with the lack of barrier between the private and public lives of, of the Trump family. And the latest issue ensnaring both Jared Kushner and, and Ivanka into the story is the, the, the clearances, the way that their, their security clearances were obtained. And, and maybe this is the serious charge. I think what is remarkable here is just the fact that it's so blatant mm -hmm. that, that security clearances are being handed out and they're completely un unwarranted. Yeah. Uh, Joel, have the Democrats made a mistake with the list of 80 people they want to interview before Mueller's findings have been released? Uh, no, I, I don't think so. I mean, I think that the Democrats may be biting off more than they can reasonably chew. Um, that's an awful lot of work for the very skeletal staffs that congressional committees have to try to process all of that. But I think uh, the Democrats understand there's a time issue here, that the window of time is limited. And I think the Democrats are trying to figure out, uh, uh, as among all of the possible claims and allegations against the president, which are the most serious and, and, and what warrants further investigation. Uh, but I don't think that it necessarily will lead to impeachment. You know, the fact that the president may have committed impeachable offenses does not mean the president should be impeached. That is really a policy judgment, a political judgment. Mm -hmm. 
and and this might explain, I think, uh, why there is an abundance of witnesses, is that we don't really know which direction this is going to go. It, it, this, when I was thinking about it this morning, I was thinking about the story of the four wise blind men who were feeling an elephant. And each of them feels a different part of the elephant and says, you know, the elephant is like a cord because they're near the tail, or, you know, the elephant is a, is a column because they're feeling the, the legs. And, and I think that different lawmakers in the Democratic Party see different aspects of this as more blameworthy or more uh, worth pursuing. One thing that made the news fairly extensively, for example, was Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez asking questions specifically about the tax stuff, which, as Joel says, is stuff that would be fairly easy to prove, and we now have these leads of people that we can interview because of things that came out of the Cohen interview. So that's one possible angle. Other people might see other things here as more blameworthy and more worth investigating, and we might see people within the Democratic Party at odds as to what needs to be prioritized. If you're just joining us, this is In Deep. I'm Angie Cuero. We're talking about the road forward with the Mueller investigation and all the other investigations. In fact, we're about to clarify how many others there are and which ones they are. You were just hearing the voice of Hadar Abiram. She's the Thomas Miller Professor of Law at UC Hastings College of the Law. She holds law and criminology degrees from Hebrew University of Jerusalem and a PhD in jurisprudence and social policy from UC Berkeley. Professor Joel Richard Paul has lectured or published in Europe, Asia, and Latin America. He is the author of, among other books, Unlikely Allies, How a Merchant, a Playwright, and a Spy Saved the American Revolution. Boy, that's a tempting title. I'm going to pick that one up. Yes, well, <laughs> and the spy in that case is a cross-dresser, so it's an even more interesting story than it sounds. <laughs> so let's talk about how many investigations are going on out there right now. I'll let either of you tackle that one. How many are underway? We know that there's at least a number of investigations that are just addressing the issue of intelligence breaches. So just a number of investigations devoted to the question of how did the Russians technologically manage to get into the American voting system. Mm -hmm. and, and for some reason, even though that should give us an incredible amount of concern, those are the ones that we hear less about. And this is partly because even though the Mueller investigation knows something about this, these are the folks that have been indicted that are probably never going to set foot in an American court because they're Russian nationals. So we have that whole area of investigations. Then we have various committees within Congress investigating various aspects of this. And then, of course, we have the Mueller investigation. And even that is not one you know, clearly defined investigation because their mandate enables them to follow the evidence wherever it might go. This is how we end up with the charges against Paul Manafort, many of which precede the, the presidential campaign. Joel Paul and Hadar Avram talking to me in March. More of our conversation after this on the broadcast. <laughs> Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. It's the Bradcast. I'm Angie Quero, holding down the fort for Brad and Desi. Next, in my conversation with Hadar Abiram and Joel Paul, we dove into some history to give some context to our current disaster. Uh, Joel, have we seen a president before who, uh, one of the audience questions, when Trump said, I could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and my fans would still love me. There's a certain measure of hubris there. <laughs> 
<laughs> is, is he comparable? Is Donald Trump comparable to any other president in the way he presents and what he says? Andrew Jackson. Uh, uh, Andrew Jackson once famously said that uh, he would hang uh, the first man who refused to enforce the Tariff Act. Uh, I think Donald Trump takes a lot of his cues from, from uh, Andrew Jackson, including the racism that uh, Andrew Jackson practiced. Mm -hmm. Hadar, let's talk about the president's sons for a moment. Their relative positions, Donald Trump is president. They are not. What more exposure does that give to them legally, that, that he, they don't enjoy the same privileges that he has? They certainly don't, but they do have some dealings with much of the stuff that the investigations are looking at, such as, for example, the issue of the Trump Foundation, which in itself would require uh, hours to unpack. We can come back and do this tomorrow. There's plenty more. Uh, <laughs> uh, if we were to just look at the Trump Foundation, the Trump Foundation is administered by Trump's two sons. Usually when presidents have money, and typically, you know, people don't, you know, just rise rags to riches to be president of the United States. People typically have considerable wealth to begin with when they, when they uh, run for office. When they have to uh, uh, set apart their private assets from what's going to go on during their public administration life, uh, there's typically what is known as a blind trust, which is to say the person who runs the president's private business is not in touch with the president. The president doesn't know what happens in the private business. And that person, the, the trustee, can do whatever they want with the trust until the president retires from public office. This is not the, the way this is happening here. And this is just one more example of the permeability of Trump's private and public lives and why uh, Donald Trump Jr. And, and Eric are actually in the mix, because they have sort of a composite role of public and private uh, uh, actors. We also have, of course, Donald Trump's Jr.'s involvement in the Trump Tower meeting, which is an, a whole nother complicated issue. And, and, and this is partly why I think people were expecting perhaps more from the Cohen testimony and didn't get quite the kind of confirmation that they wanted that the president is actually mixed in that rather than Trump Jr. putting together the meeting. Joel, you were about to say something. Yeah, no, what I was about to say is on the, on the subject of the Trump family, one thing you have to keep in mind is that the president has a virtually unlimited authority to give pardons. And so it seems impossible to imagine that the president wouldn't give pardons to members of his family. They're, they're not going to go to jail, and they know that. Um, the risk in terms of giving a pardon is this, that once you give someone a pardon, they can no longer claim a Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. And so they can then be forced to testify. Uh, so I think the president, on the one hand, is holding back giving pardons out, but they're going to get pardons. These people are not going to jail. Of course, there is one limit on the pardon power, which is that the state uh, does not, is not bound by the president's pardon power. The pardon power applies only with regard to the federal government. So if the state of New York decides to go after uh, Eric Trump and Don Jr. because of their management of the uh, Trump Foundation, uh, they can well, in fact, one of our audience members was asking about indictment by the state. It almost sounds like, in a sense, New York has more power here than the federal system does. In some ways, in some ways, and with regard to state offenses. Mm -hmm. We have to keep in mind that we're talking about two jurisdictions that have two completely different laws, and we're talking about different crimes because of the jurisdictions. Mm -hmm. With regard to the foundation and with, reg with regard to the insurance fraud, uh, those are two areas where the state may have more jurisdiction because the foundation was incorporated under New York law, as I understand it, and the, found, and the uh, insurance generally is regulated by, primarily regulated by states.
I'm kind of dashing down an alleyway here, but I'm, I'm just curious, Joel, to get your impression. You were talking about the pardon power. Yeah. And when Nixon resigned and Gerald Ford said he was pardoning the president not so much over merits of anything, he wanted the country to be able to move forward. Move forward, right. What would what could you see having happened to Richard Nixon if that pardon hadn't happened? And how legit do you think that pardon was? I, re I remember at the time being quite outraged by the pardon because I felt that it denied us the opportunity to learn whatever we might have learned in the course of a trial. But I don't think that Gerald Ford was wrong in the sense that the country had gone through a great deal of trauma and... Uh, I'm not sure that uh, putting Nixon up for trial uh, would have necessarily uh, contributed to reconciliation. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, in the case of Donald Trump, I, I, I'm not sure um, what is the best route because uh, on the one hand, a, a trial of the president might persuade some of his supporters that there really are grounds for the removal of the president if in fact those grounds exist, and I'm, I'm not presuming that. Uh, and on the other hand, uh, I am concerned that uh, a certain portion of this country feels so disenfranchised, so angered, uh, that having a, a trial situation might uh, create uh, further bitterness and even violence. What are your thoughts on that, Hadar? I think it's a good thing to keep in mind, and, and Joel alluded to this, and, and I agree with him, that whether to give somebody a pardon or whether to, to decide to prosecute them or pursue criminal charges is, is as political a decision as, as it is legal. And reasonable minds can differ on what the cost-benefit analysis is like. I mean, if we need any proof that, you know, throwing people in prison does not necessarily, you know, do good things, we have only to look at our bloated prisons every day and, 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 and see that uh, uh, going on. So... So, so this is not necessarily a unifying thing. And I think that a lot of the questions that people might be asking themselves if it ever comes to that is, um, is it better for us to get this person out of office knowing that he cannot harm the public anymore or insisting on getting, you know, presumably the bigger prize by pursuing criminal charges and then having him put up a front and refuse to leave? So, so there could be all kinds of give and takes going on in this decision, and I think what the cost-benefit analysis is going to come down to depends on who you ask. Well, in fact, Michael Cohen said in his, in his testimony that he thought there could be an issue with turning over to the next administration, which is really sobering. I want to ask what might seem an obvious question, but I think it's worth qualifying. Uh, the New York Times put together a list of the various Russian people who were, have been that we keep hearing the names of in this administration. There's Natalia Veselnitskaya. She met with Donald Trump Jr. and Jared and Manafort and promised very high-level sensitive information about Hillary Clinton. There's Sergei Kislyak who is a former Russian ambassador, and he advised Michael Flynn about opening a back channel to Moscow. Dmitry Klokov reportedly told Ivanka he would introduce Trump to Putin to get that hotel deal done. Those people appear to be completely outside the jurisdiction of the United States. What power does the U.S. have when a foreign entity, a foreign person, is dealing with issues in the United States that technically is none of their business, or at least can, can precede a breaking of the law by American citizens. Well, there's, there's nothing that a court can do 
uh, the Russian government is not going to extradite those individuals. Uh, we don't have an extradition agreement with the Russian government. However, it is certainly possible that either Congress or a future president could decide to impose some kind of sanctions against those individuals if they have dealings with the United States. Mm -hmm. And and also, I, I would add to that, that the indictment of foreign nationals by the Mueller team is also a very powerful symbolic move because what it tells to both American and for Americans and foreigners that are mixed up in some of the stuff that the, 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 the investigation has dug up is we know what happened. We can point out to the particular people who hacked, to the particular people who distributed the emails. We have the chain of command. We see a little bit of this in the <coughs> Roger Stone indictment. So, so at least there's the message that we are at the bottom of this, and since you can only see the tip of the iceberg, you can only guess all the other things that we know at the probable cause level and are not ready to move with indictments yet. And yet the hacking and the disinformation is continuing. Yes, of course. That, that hasn't stopped. Well, it's a standard that the law is always a little bit behind technology. A lot of law is made, you know, when you look back at something that happened and say, gee, that shouldn't be legal, and then the law catches up. And we're seeing unprecedented use of the Internet, social media, things that really, you know, haven't been an issue before. And I'm wondering if what we're seeing from the involvement of Americans with Russians may, in fact, not be illegal or not as illegal as it should be, because this is all new. It's, I think maybe a, a, another way to look at this is to say that what this has exposed is the immense amount of American naivete about what Putin wants and what lengths he's willing to go to to get what he wants. Mm -hmm. And that has been remarkable. Like, I, I can attest that I myself am pretty surprised. And, and, and of course, to, to people who are closely following geopolitics and looking at what Russia has been doing in the last few years and what happened when Putin basically inherited the post-Yeltsin world of, of oligarchs and how we found ways to deal with them— it shouldn't be that surprising, but I think we've all lived in this naive, through this naive idea that the elections were actually a domestic matter, mm -hmm. and and that is definitely something to waking up for, to to wake up from, because now we have the technology piece and we have the fact that other countries are interested in what happens here and and might interfere. And there is a historical parallel to that, because in the election of Jefferson in 1800, uh, people don't realize this, but the Republican Party. That is to say the Jeffersonian Republican Party, not the modern Republican Party. But the Jeffersonian Republican Party was started by the French ambassador, uh, Edmond Genet, uh, Citizen Genet, who was here in the United States. And he, was, he literally moved up the eastern seaboard, starting Republican clubs in every town he went to. And those Republican clubs became the foundation of the Republican Party. So it was, it was explicit. It was, it was clear that the French government was interfering in American politics at that time. But since then, we have not seen anything quite as blatant as we have seen in the last election. Really like this question from one of the audience members. Since we can't go after Russian individuals, should we hold social media platforms responsible? I don't know that we've heard anything about a direct manipulation of Twitter or Instagram, <coughs> but certainly Facebook is in, is in its own class there. There, there are First Amendment issues here. That raises that 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 makes it very problematic. Mm -hmm. Holding the uh, platforms responsible, and it really comes down to the question as to what is a platform. You know, is is a platform like a newspaper or a magazine? We don't want to hold newspapers or magazines liable because we want them to become free channels of information. Is it like a public park or a public space where anybody is free to make any sort of statement? We don't want to close them down for that reason, or are they in some sense 
more actively involved in curating news and information and presenting it in a way that makes it appealing and, and, and promoting information that may be disinformation. Hadar, what about passively allowing to happen something you know is happening? Does that change anything about First Amendment issues? Well, I think the, the, the bigger question here, and that's one, one of the things that, yeah, and, and I know Facebook is now looking back at what it's doing is, and thinking of introducing more tight controls and, and has been heavily criticized, especially recently for its role in this. The question about kind of just letting people do it depends a lot on the fact that the people who are on Facebook have chosen to be on Facebook voluntarily. And they've chosen to absorb the information. And what's amazing is that much of this is not just lack of knowledge about how Facebook operates. It's apathy about the fact that there are algorithms running everything. I can't even tell you when, when my students uh, study the Fourth Amendment, which is all about privacy, and we talk about what people put on social networks. It's not that they don't know that you know private things are visible and they can be exploited. There's just apathy. People just don't care because it's become something that you... You couldn't not have a phone, like a land phone in your house in the 80s. Now you can't not be on Facebook, or at least that's the perception. So, so, so it's not so much the lack of knowledge, and I think one of the arguments that these platforms might make is people are here on their own free will, and you know anyone who's on the internet needs to take into account the possibility that they're interacting with a Russian bot and not with an American national, because that is what the internet is like. Caveat emptor. Exactly, exactly. And, and a lot of this depends on kind of like how much is the public deceived or how much does the public not actually care. Mm-hmm. It's time for the last question, and I really wanted you guys, this is, this is an essay question. <laughs> what I wanted to do is to let you indulge in some final thoughts, either some wisdom that you can share that maybe gave people hope about getting through this huge mess, or any major misunderstanding that you'd really like to correct in the public perception of what's going on. Can I start with you, Joel? I, I think the reason that I'm a historian uh, is because I find something hopeful in seeing the messes that we've gotten into in the past and the way we've somehow managed to muddle through them. Um, uh, sometimes it's been very costly to us, but I am hopeful and I do honestly believe that we have enough faith in our institutions still in this country, that we can manage to find our way through this, that the institutions will survive whatever abuse uh, may be thrown at them, uh, and that uh, we'll, we'll, we'll find a way through it. Hadar? When Ben Bernanke, who ran the Federal Reserve, talked about the 2008 financial crisis, he explained it as a combination of... Uh, sort of things that happened and vulnerabilities that allowed them to happen. Uh, and I think that's a good way to understand what's going on here. Trump is not the crisis. There is a crisis that predates the Trump administration and allowed the Trump administration to flourish. Uh, and, and, and the way to think about this is we're already running a country in a way that people feel removed from their government. Trust in government has been plummeting. We're seeing huge wealth inequalities. We're seeing a lot of nativism and racism sprout up. Without all of these conditions, you know, we wouldn't be dealing with someone who looks like, you know, a despot from central casting, right? You know, crass, mendacious, you know, all the things that you can say about Donald Trump and will probably be true. We will need to, even after long after he is gone, and he will eventually be gone one way or the other, uh, we will have to do deep work to clear up that constitutional rot and emerge from it better. 
where I find hope is in looking at our law students who are coming in and in looking at the way how law and journalism have become cool things again. How people have realized that, yes, there are some situations where you need the master's tools to dismantle the mantle's house. And one thing that I would encourage people to do is, you know, seek careers that have to do with journalism, seek legal avenues to make change, and build trust, returning the glory to these professions that are adept at cleaning up everything that has gone wrong here. Joel Paul and Hadar Avaram in conversation with me for my show, In Deep with Angie Coiro, recorded in March. It airs on many of these same stations and streams. You can find our whole hour at indeepradio.com slash podcasts. And that is a wrap on today's broadcast. You will hear Brad and Des in for the next go-round. I'm sure I'm going to see you soon again. Until then, good luck, world. Good luck, world.